Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, and welcome to the Silmarillion Seminar. This is Jordan Brown, High King of the Noldor and proud Silmarillionaire. In this week's episode, we discuss Of the Sun and Moon, or Celestial Objects with Benefits. Tonight, we cover the rising of the sun and moon, the marring of Feanor, the seemingly counterintuitive relationship between Morgoth and Light, Mike goes off the rails with style time, my general hatred of this chapter, and that Tolkien agreed with me, and then we briefly touch on the mightiest mariner of song. Make sure you pay special attention to how many times I Think Jordan is Right appears in this episode. Good evening, everybody. Are we ready for a little cosmology this evening? Let's start off with some basic, uh, some of the simple questions, things like definitions. Okay, let's see, Mike, you had a couple things that you wanted to ask about the, let's see, uh, you mentioned both, uh, both Ilman and Almarin. Almarin and Ilman, right? Uh, yeah, yeah the first one was, uh, and she gave them powers to, to traverse the lower regions of Ilmen. Yes. Was the first sentence. And then uh, the second one was, I think, um, I don't know where Almarin was, but I know in my margin I put a question mark there. Yeah. Uh, Almarin is the place where the Valar lived before the destruction of the lamps. Um, that was sort of the place that was right in the middle uh, of Middle Earth, and then they had to, they abandoned it after the destruction of the lamps by Melkor. Ilmen is the name for the well, it's not in the atmosphere; it's the region of sky where the stars are. Um, and this is actually one of the things that's kind of a holdover in the um, in his original conception of the sun and the moon thing. He actually made a distinction between uh, basically how much altitude the sun and the moon could achieve. The sun was up in the high, like above the atmosphere, above the air, above the sky, was up where the stars were, but the moon couldn't get quite up that high. The moon was lower than the sun. And uh, so he it, here Varda is letting them both go into Ilmen. They're, they're both being equipped to fly up with the stars above the atmosphere. So that's what, that's what Ilmen is. It's like the sea of the skies. Um, uh, okay, so those are those are those two. Um, um, let's see. Uh, Matt was uh, was wanting was asking about Isildur uh, and his name, the the uh, connection with Isil, the moon. Um, yes, yes. Um, now you you'll remember we get Minas Anor and Minas Ithil in Minas Tirith. Now those, of course, are um, those are those are Sindarin names. Isil is Quenya. Um, Isil is the Quenya name for the moon. Um, and, uh, so yes, I- Isildur does in fact, uh, seem to be derived from, from the moon. Um, so it seems no accident that Isildur is the one who sets up Minas Ithil, um, the Tower of the Moon in Gondor when they get over there. Um, so, so, so yes, it is true that Isildur's name is etymologically connected to that of the moon. That is no accident. Um, Let's see. Let's open up with. Might as well open up where the chapter opens up. Uh, Dave, you wanted to talk about the marring of Feanor. Sure. Why not? Um, I just was struck. Um, 
reading through this chapter this time in a way that I previously was not, that they 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 sort of before they get into talking about the sun and the moon, they start mentioning um, they talk a lot about uh, Fanor and they say, oh, here's a line. <clears throat> and they mourn not more for the death of the trees than for the marring of Fanor, of the works of Melkor, one of the most evil. For Fanor was made the mightiest in all parts of body and mind, in valor, in endurance, in beauty, in understanding, in skill, in strength and in subtlety alike, of all the children of Iluvatar, and a bright flame was in him. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting, just the fact that they point out, one, that Fanor was marred somehow, uh, and two, that uh, the marring of him was of Melkor's many, many, many evil works, at least up until now, is by far the most evil. Um, and I was, I was very struck by that. The marring of Fanor is the most evil of Melkor's works. Why is that? Um, and uh, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, well, one of the most evil. Um, uh, the other thing which had been, which has been singled out, um, uh, earlier on as the most hateful to Iluvatar of Melkor's works was the marring of the elves, uh, that is the change, the, the making of the orcs. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I mean, yeah, I would Marring of Fanor is something very different. He wasn't turned into an orc. He was corrupted inside himself. Right, right, exactly. And I think, you know, one thing here, one thing here is um, basically the sort of the question of free will um, to think of, you know, as you said, the, you know, the fall of Feanor as basically something which is on Melkor, <laughs> you know, that this is, this is something that Melkor did wrong. Um, and, and that it's not Feanor and Feanor's own choices, um, that are sort of being blamed for this. I don't know. I kind of think that that line of thinking can be taken too far. Um, in general, there are a lot of people and we'll, Actually, we didn't even talk about it too much when we went by it the first time back in the Anuindale. That is the references to, uh, the wills of, of men being sort of particularly free. And therefore the implication that some people have seen that elves' wills are less free. Um, there are lots of debates out there about, you know, do elves have free will or not? Um, I, in the end, don't really get into this debate very much. I think it's not, very useful even to think about them not having free will at all in any way. They are clearly held responsible for their actions. Um, and, you know, there's sort of a basic premise of the fact that they are in some sense moral agents. So thinking of them as having no free will seems to me a little bit on the silly side. But it is interesting that, uh, that, that Melkor is being blamed here. And I think in my eyes, it seems like this is, this, this moment at the beginning of this chapter is kind of an important qualification. We have seen Feanor's career go completely out of control. You know, we last saw Feanor cackling in maniacal glee as he's setting fire to the ships, um, and stranding Fingolfin on the far side. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, when we discussed that chapter, we were looking at, you know, sort of the, the, the steep downward trend of Feanor's, uh, decisions and of his moral character and um and you know i think it's it's pretty clear <laughs> that that he's really gone very 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 far downhill by now and then just you know before we write feanor off as a complete monster we get this reminder um by the way don't forget 
yeah, he's horrible and he's doing these horrible things, but he has fallen and where he fell from was from a very, was from a very great height and that this was, um, and that this is a tragedy and not to forget, not just to become so anti-Feanor and not just to get so lost in like, wow, Feanor is horrible. He's a real jerk. Um, to be think, to, to be recognizing this is a tragedy. This is a terrible tragedy. Feanor could have been, should have been great. Um, and Melkor participated in his corruption, you know, and wanted to corrupt him and set out to corrupt him and, 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 you know, and sort of contributed to his corruption. But, I don't think that we're that we're to see this as you know saying well see it wasn't Feanor's fault. Well, I don't. I'm I'm sort of. I think I agree with that. Um, I just find it interesting that Feanor is singled out as as one of Melkor's most evil works. He's. I, I'm wondering if Feanor is sort of. Um, oh, crap, I forget what the word is when you use the one thing as a to stand in for the many. Um, but I wonder if sort of Feanor is is almost the the archetypal elf, and in in its in his his. I wonder if this is the elvish fall. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Feanor is Adam. He is the elvish Adam in this sense. He is the guy who you know it's 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 not Melkor's fault per se, but Melkor corrupts him, and Feanor, in choosing to do the wrong thing, sent, takes the elves down, or at least some of the elves down, the wrong direction. And so, in many ways, he is the elvish Adam. He's the guy that um, he is the original sin of the elves in a way. Yeah, no, I mean I think there are some there are some pretty clear parallels there. Um, I mean, as I think I've said before, I, I I can't stop thinking about Genesis three and Genesis four throughout this whole section. Um, uh, Gen- Genesis four, of course, being the 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 slaying of of you know the murder of of Abel by Cain. Um, with the whole kinslaying connect uh, connection. Um, but yeah, no, I I. I agree. I mean, I guess the one thing I would that the way I was thinking about it, especially in the context here of thinking about this as one of the most evil of the deeds of Melkor, in a sense, Feanor is, and I think I think synecdoche is the word you were looking for before. Um, yes, that yeah. he is. He he serves as a kind of synecdoche, not just for all the elves, but for like everything. You know that that. He is kind of a representative of like all of Melkor's works, almost all of Melkor's works. His desire to come in and to take the beautiful things in Iluvatar's creation and to corrupt them and to twist them and to dominate them. And if he can't dominate them, to destroy them, um, or to bring them as with, as in Fanor's case, to destroy himself. Um, right. and that's been what he's doing from the beginning. That's what he was doing from, from, from the music. Remember, this is the very pattern of the discord in the great music at the beginning. At first, he was just trying to elevate his own part. He was trying to achieve mastery. Um, and when that wasn't working, he was just trying to drown out everything else. You know, what he couldn't rule, he would just, he would try to destroy. Uh, and so I think that that's, um, uh, I think that that's pretty clearly the pattern that we can see here in Feanor as well. And so and I do think in a sense, and here the, the, the one thing I would want to be kind of careful of with Feanor is, that is with the Feanor Adam connection. Um, of course, it's easy to take that too far, um, especially oh, yeah, when we definitely. think about the, you know, the it's, way that the cinema. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Especially, especially when we think about, you know, the sin of Adam and how that's discussed in, in the Christian theological tradition and, you know, the way that original sin is then passed on to, you know, all human beings after that. And we don't get that 
queer thing. Now, again, we still get a sense of that. I mean, we have like the Noldoran sort of version of original sin in the Curse of Mandos. Um, you know, and we were looking at the curse a couple weeks ago. Um, when, and, and this will come up and we'll see it crop up again in future chapters. Um, you know, this thing that keeps kind of coming back to haunt them and this way in which everything they do becomes, becomes corrupt and, and tragedy gets woven through all of even, even their sort of most well-intended things. Um, but, but it's not, it is not nearly as thoroughgoing as the sin of Adam was. So yeah, so we do have to be careful about that. But certainly the fall from grace and the leading of others to fall and all of that stuff, there's, yeah, there's definitely, um, um, there's definitely, uh, I, I think a, a pretty clear connection there. Mike, you had wanted to, to add to this too? I wanted to throw into the discussion that, um, I don't have the Book of Lost Tales, but I know that there is there a section in that work called Arda Mard, or the Marring of Arda, because I noted that the, the same the same expression is described towards Feanor, that Melkor has marred Feanor. So Feanor is the best creation of Iluvatar, of all the children of Iluvatar, and he's now been marred in the same way that Arda has been marred. Yeah, yeah, that phrase actually uh, it can be found in the Silmarillion. Uh, if you turn... Um, if you turn in my edition to page 255, um, this is the very end, the, the end of the voyage of Arendelle chapter, the end of the Quenta Silmarillion, ends with the, 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 you know, the paragraph, here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, that was of old the fate of Arda Mard. Um, and if any change shall come and the marring be amended, Manwe and Varda may know, but they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dooms of Mandos. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, that, that concept of Arda Mard, I think is, is really central, and I think that, uh, I mean, you're right, Mike, to pick up on that connection with the words there. Um, and this is why, I, th- that I think is also one of the things that suggests that connection to me. I mean, I think that we really can see sort of Feanor standing in here, um, in a sense. But, I, I mean, I don't want to just go that way and say he is a representative of all of the good things that Melkor screws up. It's also, I think, significant, again, thinking of the pattern that we've been seeing before, that is, that it's the high ones, it's the it's the powerful ones, and it's the sub-creators who tend to be most tempted and who tend most often to fall. It is clearly no accident that, um, that Feanor is... Uh, that Feanor being the greatest and most wonderful in almost every possible dimension of all of the children of Iluvatar ever is the one who falls. And, you know, I think one of the, th- one of the kind of subtexts to this, we talked before about how Feanor is parallel to Melkor himself. Of course, almost everything said, uh, in that paragraph about Feanor could also be said about Melkor himself. We know that he is, you know, the greatest in all of these ways and, and has most, you know, ha- has most of the mind of Iluvatar in him, um, of all of the, the, the Ainur. And so in some sense, the marring of himself was Melkor's, you know, was like the greatest tragedy, um, and one of the greatest works of evil. Um, and I think we can, again, we can, we can kind of see this echoed in Feanor, not only, um, that Feanor mars himself in the same way that Melkor marred himself, but that, um, but that Melkor being, being also sort of marred by Melkor just as Melkor marred himself. I mean, I think the parallels are pretty cool there.
Well, I, the other thing I would toss in, um, uh, Jason pointed out in the text that, that, of course, we had the creation of the orcs before this, so technically sort of Feanor isn't the first, you know, um, corruption of the elves, but I think I think what's key here is that in the case of, you, you know, you pointed out that sort of Melkor seeks to dominate things, and when he can't dominate them, destroy them, and I, I think it, I think you, I think it's fair to say that he neither dominates nor at least directly destroys um, Feanor. Feanor is sort of in a way too powerful to be dominated, um, or maybe even, I suppose, if there was a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, he could have been destroyed. And so what was really marred here is the gift of free will, um, that, that, that he wasn't able to, it's not like with the uh, with the elves that he turned into orcs where he took them and tortured them and twisted them and turned them something into slaves that were something other than what they were before, but he, just with a whisper here and a lie there and some intervention, he, he managed to change Feanor's path enough um, that Feanor starts to misuse his gift free will. And, and I think that's where, as you were saying before, um, you can't blame Melkor directly for everything that Feanor does. He makes his own decisions. And he was troubled beforehand. And they specifically say, you know, who knows what great things he might have done if Melkor hadn't sort of screwed things up. Well, the only person who could even maybe imagine is Manway. And yet there's this idea that maybe, just maybe, things might have worked out better if Melkor hadn't intervened. And instead, Feanor, of his own volition, had down this completely different path, and so really, I think I think what maybe distinguishes him from you know what distinguishes Fanor from the rest of creation in his corruption is the fact that he has the power of free will, and that Melkor corrupted him just enough to enable Fanor to go off and do his own damage and do his own evil without you know being a slave to Melkor, and so and maybe that connects to the sub-creator thing that the, the what's truly awful about Fanor's corruption is that he is sort of the quintessential essential sub-creator corrupted. He's the guy who, who after he's corrupted, is perfectly capable of doing all kinds of his own evil and, mm -hmm. leading, and corrupting other people and leading other people down the wrong path. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you got to think with Fanor, um, one of the greatest mercies, in a sense, is that he's going to die pretty soon. Because, as you, as you suggest, had he gone on to a long career, um, imagine the damage he could have done. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a great deal of harm just as he had this wonderful power for good. And, and I mean, as, as the, the Valar kind of sort of, you know, imagine the works, uh, the works of wonder for the glory of Arda that he might otherwise have wrought only Manway might in some measure conceive. Of course, you can say similarly, uh, you know, the deeds of horror that he could have wrought had he been permitted to continue down the road that he started. I mean, just think of the year he's had, uh, you know, like the one past year of, of his life here. If he'd gone on to a several thousand more, what could he have done? Um, so yeah, I think that that's, uh, that that's a pretty big deal. And I think that, you know, we, we can, we can definitely see that. I mean, I think that parallel is really powerful. And I think even thinking back to the passage, um, earlier on where Feanor, where we are told of Feanor, how, you know, he, he's speaking against Morgoth and he's the one who names him Morgoth and, and, uh, um, you know, and, 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 and his, is his bitterest foe. And yet this, the things that he's saying when he's speaking to the Noldor, you know, he's basically ventriloquizing Morgoth himself. And those ideas were sort of planted in his mind by Morgoth. But I think in part, what we can see there is not just the fact that he has been successfully manipulated by Melkor, which he has, but also that he's walking down the same path that, that, that Morgoth 
walked down. I mean, if he sounds like Morgoth, if he's saying the same things here that Morgoth has said, it's because his attitude is now Morgoth-like. Um, and his rebellion against the Valar is very similar to the rebellion of Melkor against Iluvatar in the beginning. So, um, so of course they're going to sound alike. Um, good, good. Uh, several of you wanted to talk about Balrogs, and I think we should totally do that. Uh, Joe, you wanted to talk? I, I think you, you brought it up first. Alrighty. Now, um, one thing I just, I kind of made a small comparison here. Uh, could the Balrogs, if having to be classified with the sex as some of the Ainur have been, be classified as females? I was just wondering this because Arian is described as a spirit of fire, and, you know, I know Balrogs were described with shadow and flame, so I don't know if there's a difference between them, or if, uh, Morgoth could have given the Balrogs their shadow power, and, uh, I, you know, I kind of asked this because Balrogs were described as only only spirits of fire in the beginning. And then I also know that sex for the Ainur is derived basically from their attitudes more than them being strictly male or female. So right. I didn't really expect this to be an absolute, but I thought it was interesting. It is. I mean, it, it is interesting. That, I, I think that you're certainly right to make this connection. I mean, if we're... Um, Aryan, the uh the 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 spirit who becomes the you know the driver of the sun the spirit of the sun she is the one if you want to look anywhere at what an uncorrupted balrog might look like there it is right and i think thinking about thinking about uh the shadow and flame thing that you mentioned of course here with Aryan, we see fire and heat and light, right? So we can see, I think, there the inversion. Of course, fire, uh, fire and light go very naturally together. Um, and it makes sense that she would be radiant and glorious, um, as this spirit of fire. And it's, it's, it's a very natural, um, you know, place for her to kind of take over the sun. And, and we, you know, when we hear of her love for Laurelin previously, uh, before the destruction of the trees. So yeah, I think that, um, that seems to me, and I mean, even that we can't take to the bank. I mean, it's not a hundred percent obvious or, or like certain that the Balrogs would have looked just like that um, had they not been corrupted. But as I said, that's the closest thing that we get. And uh, and I think here um, now, as, as for the as for the gender thing, I, don't, I mean, I don't think that we can necessarily extrapolate that just because Aryan is female that all such spirits of fire would have been female. Um, yeah, I didn't think so, but I just, that was kind of something fun I wanted to do. Yeah, well... <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, the giant Balrog looking as a feminine character, so I found that humorous in my eyes. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. And um, here's here's the other thing that you can see, and um, I, I'm, I'm half joking about this, but I'm half not joking about this. Uh, uh, that is, one can connect this back, of course, to the all-important Balrog wing debate. Um, that is, I think it's interesting, and I think it's important that Balrogs are, 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 are restricted to the ground. They can't, they, they, again, they're the opposite in, in a sense now, uh, of Arin, just as they are now shadowy instead of full of light. She is up in the upper atmosphere and they are landlocked. They can't get off the ground. Um, and this is something which is really emphasized and emphasized even more, um, in the Book of Lost Tales. In the Book of Lost Tales, one of the whole strategies for why they want to make um, these orbs of light, the sun and moon, to go up in the sky is basically, I mean, they, they sit there and they rationalize to themselves, okay, well, we've made two attempts at this whole light thing, you know, the lamps and the trees, and neither one of them worked out. Mor- Melkor destroyed both of them. 
So we've got a plan. Our third attempt, let's put them up in the sky because Melkor has no air power. The only thing that the only part of the of the world over which Melkor has no authority whatsoever is the sky because none of his servants can fly. So let's put let's put some lights up in the sky and then they're guaranteed to be safe from Melkor. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, but, but I do think it's interesting, um, that, uh, uh, the way, sort of another, another possible way to think about, uh, the alteration of the Balrogs from what might have been their original state. So, um, could the shadow, them receiving shadow and Arian really receiving the light, would that, could Morgoth have done something for that? Would that have been their own doing as in falling on one side of the line or the other? Well, I rather suspect that that, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, on, on the one hand, we do know that the, sh- I mean, based upon the confrontation that we see with Gandalf, there is definitely the implication that the shadowy part of the Balrog, uh, well, I mean, the, remember when he says, you know, the dark fire will not avail you, uh, and the flame in the Balrog appears to die. Um, now, but the shadow grows. So, uh, you know, in some ways it just seems to me shadow is so persistent throughout the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, so persistently just sort of connected as a manifestation of evil itself. Um, it's really... I mean, again, you think about Ungoliant, right? I mean, once again, Ungoliant is like the paradigm maker here. She takes light and she turns it into unlight. I'm not sure you can have corrupted light. When you corrupt light, you turn it into darkness. You turn it into unlight. Um, you, you know, light is... Light is an intrinsically positive, it's an intrinsically good thing. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think that, I think that the shadow of the Balrog seems to me most likely to be kind of the natural state, the natural expression, sort of spontaneous ref- reflection of their own corruption. But I don't know, I'm not sure. Um, Jason, what do you think? I was thinking of something, uh, differently about Aryan in that, um, this may have been something that was mentioned in a session before I joined the group, but uh, what jumped out at me was that it seems to call attention to the fact that Arian is unusual in being a spirit of flame or a spirit of fire that was not corrupted by Melkor. And so my question was, what is it about being a spirit of fire that makes you maybe especially susceptible to being corrupted in that way? Yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, I could see coming at it from two very different directions. On the one hand, you might say um, that since flame is, by its action, a naturally sort of destructive element, that there's something in it sort of already like chaotic and inclined or sort of ease that 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 is easily susceptible to evil. And here I think of Ase and his natural inclination to violence, and how he uh, was t- briefly um, corrupted by Melkor, or, or sort of like sort of tempted away by by Melkor, but then he apologized and came back. Um, possibly, possibly. Of course, you could also come at it from the totally opposite direction and say again, thinking again about what I was just suggesting about the connection between fire and light, and say, because they are great, because they are high, because they are excellent, therefore, um, they're easily, they are, we see them fall, um, because, uh, you know, fire, fire is the greatest and highest of the elements. Um, okay, and this is another thing that I meant to say, uh, in connection with the whole, with the whole wings business. In medieval cosmology, of the four elements, um, the four elements each has their own place, their own sphere within the earth. Um, the earth, 
earth is on the bottom, water above that, air above that, and fire highest of all. Um, how do we know that the sphere of fire is above the sphere of the air? Well, that's very, you can perform that experiment any time. Light a match. Where does the fire go? Up. Goes up through the air. It's trying to get back up to the sphere of fire. Everybody knows this. This is why rocks fall, too. You, you let a rock go, it falls to the ground. Why? Because it wants to go down to the sphere of earth, where earth goes. Everything has a natural inclination to go to its home place. That is, you know, one of the fundamental concepts of medieval cosmology. And for my money, it is an excellently good metaphorical system, at least as good as the screwy metaphorical system that we use when we say that rocks obey the law of gravity, as if rocks, like, you know, like, what, is somebody, like, going to, like, arrest them if they disobey the law of gravity? I mean, the idea of there being a law that they obey in some sense is totally metaphorical. Um, So we use a different metaphorical system. The medieval used, the medievals used another one. Um, and, and so, so anyway, so their concept of fire, fire was high, fire was exalted. It was, fire was, was adjacent to the heavens. I mean, the boundary between, uh, between the, the mortal and corruptible earth and the, uh, the incorruptible heavens was at the sphere of fire. Um, the edge of the sphere of fire and, uh, and, and, and the sphere of the moon above that. So, so I definitely think that there is a sense, you know, one can potentially see spirits of fire as being, at least possibly, sort of intrinsically higher and more powerful creatures, more kind of Melkor-like, and therefore um, corruptible, even above the sky. I mean, Manwe as Lord of the Sky, you know, we might be tempted from a modern perspective to see, oh, see, like, that is the highest, that is the greatest thing. Actually, no, the sky was not the highest and greatest. Fire is above it. Uh, again, this is in the medieval cosmology. Um and and again, I, I, another reason that I think the winglessness of the Balrogs is kind of awesome. You know, like when you turn away from uh, from your true nature, when you uh, when you are corrupted and and become evil, then they are they 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 fall literally like gravitationally. The Balrogs fall, uh, and they and they now are earthbound um, instead of being able to return up to the higher elements of fire. Um, anyway, as I said, I kind of love that idea. So so as I said, you, I, I think you could see it because they are intrinsically corruptible because of their destructive and chaotic nature, or you could say, you know, they are higher and we see higher things tending to fall. Not sure, but I agree, you know, we don't see a lot of spirits of fire kicking around. And, uh, you know, as we have pointed out a while back, it does seem interesting that we get no Valar of fire. You know, we get a Valar of air and a Valar of earth and a Valar of water, but we don't get one of fire. Um... And, you know, it seems possibly maybe that was going to be Melkor, who knows? Or maybe that would have been Melkor. And if so, that certainly does seem to support this idea of fire being being sort of higher um, and grander, um, closer to the light. Um, in, the, in that way, Varda is in one sense the closest thing that there is to a Valar of fire, because she's the Valar of light. But, um, but let's see... Um, we should talk about the sun and moon, uh, since that's the, sort of the theme of this chapter. Uh, Jack, you had a you had a sun and moon question. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, the spirit of the of the sun in, Tol- in Tolkien's world is a uh, female, and um, the spirit of the moon, uh, or the guardian of the moon, is a male. And as reading this, that just kind of struck me as the opposite of what I've I've read mainly, I guess, from Greek uh, mythology, where we think of the sun as Apollo and the moon as Diana. And so I started thinking about that, and I was just wondering why Tolkien did that. I was thinking, well, Tolkien being a very learned man, maybe he knows that 
before the Greeks, uh, there might have been other cultures, maybe it was opposite. I mean, for all the Greeks, for everything that they gave us, democracy, etc., I mean, it wasn't exactly a, a equal society when it came to men and women. And um, so the concept of the sun being male might have been uh, just a reflection of Greek society. Yeah, I mean... Or was, I... or was Tolkien thinking of a different culture, or did he just want to do opposite? And, and, um, and go ahead... Well, I was going to say the, um, in the Norse mythology, they don't have as clear a, you know, sun god and moon god. There's no direct, there's no exact parallel to, um, to Apollo and Artemis or, or Apollo and Diana, um, that we see in the Greco Roman mythology. But the sort of fiery spirit who is kind of sun-like is female uh, in Norse mythology. But I don't think this is just a question of, of Tolkien simply incorporating uh, Norse ideas. Um, certainly the idea, I mean, I, I agree with you, the dominant sun, masculine, moon, feminine tradition, which is really dominant in our culture. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's one of the things that usually strikes people as strange, um, and sounds, um, and it just, it just kind of sounds sort of weird to people, um, uh, when reading not only the Silmarillion, but even in the Lord of the Rings. I mean, of course, remember there's, there are footnotes about this and the hobbits are always referring to the moon as she, um, uh, you know, the sun will not show her face today and things like that. And th- that often strikes people as weird because we're very used to the, the dominant Greco-Roman tradition. Um, and it's not just the Greco-Romans either. I mean, it's really the much more common way. Um, and Tolkien does, does sort of skip that. You know, I think, I think one could do an interesting general argument about this. And I, I would, is <laughs> the way that I would say it is, I think anyone who really wants to look at the depiction of women and the, tra- the the treatment of women and the treatment of the feminine by Tolkien in his works, and lots of people kind of talk about that or talk around that, I think you have to talk about the sun and moon um, if you're gonna because because that's that's a really striking thing. I mean, and um, the idea that we're going to connect the the sun, the feminine with the sun and the masculine with the moon in reversal of most of our cultural expectations. Like you have to at least be able to account for that if you're going to talk about Tolkien and gender. And I do think that this is, uh, um, I do think that this is definitely, uh, uh, an interesting thing an interesting, and it's because it, we can see it correlated with other stuff. Go ahead, Jack. Exactly, and and uh, what I thought about it, the more it fits in with Tolkien's world, as as you said before, Tolkien was always putting women above men. Um, the, the men were always marrying up, um, in, yeah. uh, whether it being Aragorn and Arwen, etc., Baron and Luthien. Yeah, I mean, when we meet, I mean, it, it is it is it is true enough that you know we don't get as many women as we get men, but when we meet women, they are almost always characters to be reckoned with. Um, and, uh, and, and Aryan is, I was about to say, with unintended pun, a shining example of this. Um, but, uh, Mike, uh, you wanted to add something here? I agree with your statement about how, if you're going to look at how uh, women are depicted or the females depicted in Tolkien, that the Sun character presents a really interesting example of uh, feminine power. And I, I love the way that Tolkien takes the idea of if, you know, if, if you or I were to look at the Sun, we would, you know, we couldn't do it for very long. We'd sort of burn out our eyes, and we'd have to look away. 
but this female sun character has that energy in her and when she when she looks at other characters they need to turn away because she's so powerful so i thought that was just another interesting way to illustrate that the power in that character yeah 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 no i agree i think that that's um um i think that, that that's definitely a really cool moment um let's see john you had wanted to talk about the uh reaction of melkor to the sun and moon um yes I was quite curious, you know, it seems to be a very common, uh, well, tendency among evildoers in Tolkien's works to hide themselves in shadow. We see this in The Lord of the Rings, of course, with Sauron, um, especially in that wonderful speech between uh, Pippin and Beragon in The Return of the King. And also we see it here, starting with uh, Melkor, as almost a trend. And I believe the excuse given, or the rationale, I should say, given in The Lord of the Rings, is the shadow is meant to basically um, keep the orcs uh, away from the sun, because, well, they just don't like it, any light, you know. Um, and with Melkor here, he seems to be shrinking away, essentially, from the sun and from the moon, basically because, um, of course, of his, well, his uh, dual hatred and, um, well, love for the ascertaining of light. In this case, now he's shunning it. And it seems like he is, uh, he's definitely weaker than Arian, especially. Uh, this is pointed out, and I, I found it very curious that Melkor has stooped so low by basically trying to make himself overground dose that he's less than a Maya now. He's basically trapped himself in Tengorodrim, in Engband itself, and he can't really cope with the outside world. He's fencing himself in. This is a policy of uh, isolationism, which we don't often see as a good thing in Tolkien's works. We do see this in um, Gondolin, which appears to be all right. And we do see this in, uh, I believe, Nargothrond, which Turin challenges. And before Turin comes along, it seems all right, too. But in terms of the way... Melkor treats it, especially. And in the reaction of that powerful radiance, which he had once coveted and now seems to hoard uh, in the Sumrils, and also to shrink away from, that's a very interesting concept, and one for, uh, I think, further discussion now and probably in the further podcast uh, to come. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, there's definitely a lot there. Um, I would say, I would say for one thing, um, it is sort of delightfully ironic that we get um, Melkor shutting himself away from the light here. I mean, we, we were told that he started with the desire for light, and then when he couldn't possess it for himself, you know, he fell into envy and hatred, and now he's just... Now he's just walling himself away. Um, it's a wonderful, that, that image, that image of him just sort of, you know, casting up this reek in this cloud about Angband and hiding from the sun. Um, you know, it's like, hey, hey, Melkor, I thought you liked light, right? I thought you were the lord of the universe here. I thought you were, you know, he, you know, he, he considers himself the greatest. He thinks he's the, he's the king of Arda, uh, and that he rules everything and he, he believes that he's gonna, he, he's possessing the light. And instead what we see is him cowering underground. He's never gonna, he's only gonna one time emerge above ground on purpose for the rest of his entire career. He's gonna stay down in the basement of a hangman of, of Angband for almost the rest of his life, um, or the the rest of his career anyway, and and he's huddling down there with the stolen Silmarils, right? Like I have the light, um, 
when I mean, yeah, he has the light of the tree in these locked in these three gems, but then there's the sun out there, <laughs> the sun and the moon, which he's hiding his face from. Um, so I mean, this 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 image of Melkor's really deep self-deception here, you know, that he believes that he is Lord, that he believes that he is ruling everything, and in the end, um, he is completely fooling himself. Um, and the thing I was thinking of, John, in connection with the... Uh, I mean, I was also definitely thinking about that that passage where he's weakening himself, and we're told that he can't even challenge Aryan now. Um, and I was reminded of the pa- of the the conversation between Aule and Iluvatar, when Iluvatar says to him, uh, to Aule, you were given as as a gift your own being only. You can't give being beings to other people. And so, you know, one of the things, sort of looking at this passage now, seeing what's happening with with Melkor and thinking back to that conversation, we can we could kind of paraphrase in one sense what Iluvatar was saying to Aule is is this what you want, Aule? You want to to weaken yourself like this? You only have so much. You can spread it out if you want. He could have animated the dwarves. He could have made the dwarves be what to what be to him what the orcs are to Morgoth. Um, now it's a little bit different. He doesn't because Morgoth doesn't give them their being. He just perverts them. But he puts his will within them, and he has made lots of other monsters and things and corrupted other things and and put his will into them as well. Um, you know and. Iluvatar saying, look, do you, do, is this what you want? He's not saying Aule to do that would be evil and that would be bad, but rather that's what evil is. <laughs> you know, you would be evil if you do that because that's how evil acts, not, um, not in, not in giving, not just in making, but in this, uh, in this, um, sort of a design desire almost i mean the, the the sending out of his will the dispersion of himself happens because he's essentially trying to draw everything into himself uh selfishly he wants everything to be a part of him and to be ruled by him and he him to be master over all of it but what happens when you do that is actually you just disperse yourself you don't draw anything in you don't increase yourself you don't elevate yourself you just lower yourself and lower yourself until you're there in the basement of your fortress um you know, just with, you know, sh- with the shining radiance of the Silmarils on your iron crown, uh, and convincing yourself that you're ruling everything. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a really sort of, it's, it's a really evocative moment. Uh, Dave, go ahead. Um, uh, I actually had a separate point, but I did want to comment on that really fast. Uh, I, I wonder if we see hints of sort of that old a- adage, um, about tyrants and the people they tyrannize that, 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 that in seeking to tyrannize those people, they, they sort of, they make, they make themselves vulnerable to those people, you know, so you can become a dictator and, uh, and accumulate power over other people, but, but that, but then in doing so, you, you, you also in a way hand them the power to, uh, defeat you down the road. I don't know. I, I see hints of that here, that it's the, the desire to dominate others, um, um, you know, creates a dependency there of, uh, upon them for you, uh, that, that, that it, it makes you no longer sort of self-sustaining or, or, or um, uh, you know, like self-sufficient in a way. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that we can see this. I mean, this is, that's ultimately what destroys Sauron, right? I mean, because he put so much of himself in the ring that he made himself vulnerable. All you have to do now is destroy the ring and you destroy a, a huge chunk of his power. And similarly, we can see it working the other way too. You know, the, the orcs and the captains of Mordor and all of his armies 
you know, are made more powerful by, by Sauron and by his dispersal of his will, uh, among his followers. But you remember what happens when Sauron rips all of his will away from everybody and is just focusing on Gollum and Frodo fighting on the edges of the cracks of doom. Um, and, and all of a sudden the armies of Mordor are just sort of standing there saying, uh, what do we do? What's going on here? Um, you know, they are bereft of will, suddenly steerless, right? So, um, so you see, there is, there is definitely, we see a model of a kind of a mutual dependency there. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to toss out was, uh, I thought, um, let's see. Dang it, lost my paper. All right, here, I'm turning, I'm turning. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask, sort of going back to the light thing, um, uh, The so they specifically say, let's see, in this passage uh, here, these things the Valar did, recalling in their twilight the darkness of the lands of Arda, and they resolved now to illumine Middle-earth and with light to hinder the deeds of Melkor. Um, I think it's very interesting. Why, what is it about light that hinders the deeds of Melkor and evil people in general? I, th- I think that's very interesting that, that, that they, they're the way they're going to go about battling him now is not to march over there with an army but basically to just give light um, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is the great counterattack, and we can see from Morgoth's reaction that it's an excellent counterattack. I mean, that it, it really works very well. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, and I think here, let's see, there's several different ways I would want to I would want to approach that. Um, on the one hand, this is a great, not necessarily a reversal, but a great alteration in the plans of the Valar, or rather in the actions of the Valar. And one of the consequences here is that, one of the consequences of the destruction of the trees is that good comes of that for the rest of Middle-earth. Now it's no longer Valinor that has the light of the trees. Now the entire world has light. And that wouldn't have happened had the trees not been destroyed. Um, so it is interesting. Good does indeed come of it. Um, and I mean, it's, it doesn't make the destruction of the trees any less sad. Uh, you know, it, 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 it remains an evil act. And yet, um, the consequences for everybody else were good. Um, and I, I think that that's sort of a, 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 a pretty, uh, suggestive, uh, moment there. Um, oh, there's another thing, Dave, in what you said, but now I'm forgetting the other thing I wanted to say about it. Oh well, lost my train of thought. Um, Joe, you wanted to add something about the 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 sun and moon too. Yes, um, it mentions that uh the moon got too close to the sun and the moon was darkened. I wonder if that relates to you know both of the trees gave out light and you know the flower of Telperium was in the middle of the moon. I wonder if uh, the moon getting too close somehow lessened that or kind of destroyed that when it says it was darkened. I don't really quite understand what it means by that. Well, I think that. The literal reference there is basically to the dark spots you can see on the moon. Uh, that is, uh, the, you know, the, the patterns that are visible in the moon. Um, and here Tolkien is kind of taking part in, and in fact, we can see this throughout this chapter, um, that one of the things that Tolkien is doing more explicitly here than he has done in many other places is writing a myth in the traditional sense of that word. Not necessarily the sense that, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis gave to the word myth, you know, in Mythopoeia and all that stuff, but the way that, like, anthropologists use the word myth, as in a story to explain, a story designed to explain a natural phenomenon. So here we have 
the moon looks weird. Like, it's not a uniform brightness. You look at the sun as much as you can look at the sun, and it's just, it's a solid disk of light. The moon is not a solid disk of light. It's got dark blotches on it. Why does the moon have dark blotches? Um, well, now we're told. Now we know why the moon has dark blotches. The moon has dark blotches uh, because it keeps getting too close to the sun and getting burned. Um, uh, and apparently the moon's pickup line's just still not working on Arian, uh, and uh, and he keeps he keeps getting scorched. So. Uh, so yeah, now, and that is a way in which this chapter is, I think, very different. Jordan, you had mentioned this uh, before, and actually, I should let you pitch in on this because you had you had been wanting to talk about this. Um, that is way the way in which this chapter kind of felt out of place or felt different uh, from the other chapters. Uh, you know, from from the chapters that we have read so far. Did you wanna? Did you wanna uh, to 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 say anything about that? Uh, yeah, I just felt like and you kind of already covered it, but this chapter just felt so bizarrely out of place. Almost like the old school, like, Greek mythology. Uh, Dave's yelling at me. I felt this chapter was very far out of place, um, that it felt very much like this sort of old school Greek mythology uh, explanations for how the world works in sort of an anti-style moment. It feels weird with the rest of the book, that sort of sun and moon are these celestial objects with benefits, and that instead of them being, you know, actual celestial objects, they're vessels that are chasing each other. And I want to return to this sort of topic um, near the end with the world of sky. Spoiler alert, Matt. Um, but, uh, like, it, I don't know, it just felt so untolking with the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, uh, there's definitely one person, at least, who really agreed with you that this chapter seemed really out of place and didn't fit in very well with the rest of it, and that was Tolkien. He really disliked this chapter. Um, in fact, he called this chapter absurd uh, towards the end of his life and was actually making plans to go back and completely gut this chapter and this entire idea. Um he and though his reasoning behind that was kind of interesting and i'm not sure i'm not sure i agree with it actually um basically here was his problem the way that tolkien was thinking about it later on and you can read about this in morgoth's ring um tolkien was basically saying okay the problem is this mythological story is obviously wrong. Like, that's not what the sun is like, and that's not what the moon is like. They don't actually act that way. And since the world, you know, this world, Arda, is basically our world, it's operating under the same basic natural laws that our world operates under. Now, it's okay to understand that in different ways, and, you know, it's not to say that, like, oh, like, there's no real such thing as Olmo, there's no Valar who lives under the sea. That's not the point. The point is, like, this is... It's okay to sort of write these mythic elements, um, like the, you know, the existence of the Valar and stuff in there, but, but you can't, you know, he was worried about having stuff which was like scientifically inaccurate and scientifically, that was the context in which he called this chapter absurd. Like scientifically speaking, this chapter is, this chapter is absurd. It's the kind of thing that ignorant people would have said. Like primitive humans might have made a myth like this of like the great sun chariot that goes up into the sky, but, Nobody who actually knows how the cosmos works would make a myth like this. And, therefore, and he continued to reason, therefore, since 
the elves who are writing these stories are getting these stories from the Valar who do indeed know exactly how the natural world works, they wouldn't have had this kind of crazy, silly story um, about the sun and the moon. They would know about, you know, the sun and the moon, the, 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 you know, the, the fact that the earth revolves around the sun and all of that stuff. Um, so he was going to pitch the whole thing. And of course, as you can imagine, pitching this chapter and doing a version of the Silmarillion mythology, which... Um, which has the sun, the earth, the earth revolving, you know, the round earth revolving around the sun from the very beginning of the arrival of the Valar, uh, into Arda entails an enormous amount of rewriting of this story. I mean, you, there's still a lot of things that can happen the same, but that's a, there are some huge changes, but he was, he was ready. I mean, he was gonna, he was gonna, he was gonna, you know, uh, you know, unweave a lot of this stuff and, and, and do it again. He was, you know, of course, remember still by the time of his death, the Silmarillion had not been published. So we're not necessarily talking about going back and having to, to make corrections to a printed work. Um, but, but he was going to have to rewrite massive stretches of his mythology, but that's what he wanted to do. Now he never did it. As I said, I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure I agree with that. That is, I don't think I agree with, uh, the insistence that like it has to be scientifically accurate based upon our modern scientific understanding like i'm fine with the story as a story um it does work differently but i don't think i don't know i i mean i i i'm comfortable with the sun and the moon and with the flat earth which becomes round uh i mean i i i think um i don't know um I, I actually don't agree uh, with his assessment that the thing is absurd and has to be changed because it seemed to be driven not by his storytelling. That is his his desire, to, his rejection of this was was seemed to me. And when you, when 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 you read what he wrote about it, seems not to be driven by his storytelling, but by his anxiety of its of of the difficulty that people who know stuff about science would have to it that like it just it seems so scientifically ignorant and he was worried about people thinking that the elves would sound dumb uh you know if they were saying such scientifically ignorant things and i you know i don't know i i, I just i think i don't i the way that he went about talking about it at the end sounds a little too slavish to me like a slavish to to the real world really I, deviate and we could talk more in detail i mean here i'm sort of going off about a thing that he said in morgoth's ring which i haven't read and which we haven't read together but um but i think that some of the some of the ways that he talks about the changing of of his cosmos there is basically i think a violation of some of the basic stuff that he taught and and, and believed about subcreation and mythopoeia you know, I don't think you have to, you, you know, you have to be like, well, if it doesn't, if it's not how it really is in the real world, you know, according to, to, to the science of the real world, then you can't say it. Well, what about the green sun? You know, what about all these other things, you know, that he says in on fairy stories about, about, about myth making and about sub creation? Um, you know, dude, if you want the sun to, sun and the moon to be created like this, go for it. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Um, but anyway, I so I mean I do think that it works, but but Jordan, I, I think that you, you're you're absolutely right to see this as kind of moving in a different direction, and I do think it, it is one of the reasons that he was uncomfortable with it. Um, yeah, I mean I, I one more. I, go ahead, go ahead. 
Um, and I don't know, maybe we should, I just see if we should cover this now or wait till the end. Um, the Silmaril in the sky, should we wait until we actually get to that? Because it's the exact same topic. Yeah, yeah, we probably should. Um, because Just because, uh, not necessarily on, uh, on uh, you know, spoiler pr- uh, principles, but because... Without reading the other things in the setup to that story, our discussion is is probably not going to make a lot of sense to people. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that um, I think we we probably should save that, but but we'll definitely come back to it. Uh, Laura, go ahead. I was just curious. Uh, I know, uh, kind of early on, Tolkien had sort of conceptualized his world as something that happened on our own world, but far back in the past. Mm-hmm. Is that something that he let go of as he uh, towards the end of his life? Well, no. I mean, he let go of sort of the the geographical and cultural literalism of it. That is, you know, the identification of elven home and England and of particular and you know, uh, Cortirian, you know, core or Cortirian what becomes Tyrion upon Tuna. Um with Warwick, England. I mean, that is the kind of thing that he let go of uh, as time went on. Um, but the identification with our world in general and the idea that this stuff is supposed to be the way distant, far prehistory of our world, he didn't let go of. And that's why he was anxious about the, all the scientific stuff. Because he's saying, you know, if this is really our world and these people are supposed to be wise and they're supposed to know things, it's basically... He was wor- He seemed to be worried that it pushes readers over the edge into, like, I just have to willingly suspend disbelief if I'm supposed to believe that these elves are wise and the Valar know everything and they're telling stories about, you know, the fruit of the tree of Laurelin being made into the sun and, and you know, and, and the flat earth being made into the round earth, as we'll see later on, and all of those things. I think that his anxiety about that is, is very much rooted in the fact that he did still see this as the prehistory of our world, and that was much later. Yeah, it's a it's a bit incongruous because it, the myth itself, although it you know it's beautiful, uh, a beautiful idea, but it does seem a little childish or childlike mm-hmm. to me. So that's maybe that's also some of the difficulty yet with it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not perfect, and and I agree. I mean, I think I do think that that I mean I I do think that Jordan is right, although I don't think. Although I don't agree with what Tolkien said later that it was absurd, and I think that his his anxiety about it and his disapproval of it was, I think, I think it was a little bit unnecessary. I think he was a little too worried about that. But nevertheless, I think that Jordan is right to say this doesn't sound like the rest of these chapters. Um, this doesn't work that same way. Uh, the rest of this, the rest of this story hasn't sound. Uh, the 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 rest of these stories ha- hasn't sounded childlike or childish in that way and um and yeah i think that that's a fair that that's a fair criticism this this is just a very different kind of myth a very different kind of story um and i think you know maybe maybe revision would have been a good idea i just don't think that he would have had to work under the premise that he seemed to be constraining himself to um later on um but uh but yeah i mean i think that that's i think that that's uh I think that it is fair to say um, the the kind of the simplicity of this, um, but but it still is kind of beautiful, um, and I don't know, I don't know. Um, 
I don't want to uh, I don't want to just reject it. I have to admit for me the sun and the moon part isn't nearly as part as the fl- isn't nearly as hard as the flat earth. I don't have nearly as much of a problem with that uh or as much of a difficulty with that as I have with the flat earth part. Um uh but that's a purely personal um that's a purely personal hang up, I think. Um as a medievalist, one of the things that I get really annoyed by is the fact that modern people don't understand that this is one of I mean as 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 my students in my medieval classes can tell you one of my pet peeves is the modern belief the modern misunderstanding that medieval people believed the world was flat let me say this again as I will say this hundreds of times for the rest of my life nobody in the middle ages believed the world was flat everybody always knew the world was round from ancient greece we knew the world was round Everybody knows that. That is a, that is a Victorian, literally a Victorian conspiracy. Uh, there were a whole bunch of things. When Victorian, when some, when Victorian guys were writing textbooks, um, they made stuff up about the Middle Ages to make them sound stupider so that modern people would sound smarter. Um, Christopher Columbus did not set out to prove the world was round. Everybody knew it was round. People thought you couldn't sail all the way around it because they thought that there were like zones that you would pass through which humans couldn't survive in. Everybody knew that the world was a sphere. Everyone knew that the whole universe was a set of concentric spheres. Um, so there's no question about this. And so to me, Tolkien's flat earth story, um, that kind of makes me cringe because I feel like it sort of perpetuates it, it to people, to, to, to modern readers who don't know anything about medieval cosmology. It may seem to kind of confirm this idea. Oh, just like, you know, how people used to think the world was flat, but now they think it's round. Um, so that sort of, okay. My pet peeve aside. I, I would, I'd like to add to that, by the way, that, uh, yeah, in terms of Christopher Columbus, that, that the major problem with him, the reason why the, the Portuguese um, didn't support him, is because everyone thought that he was a lunatic for thinking that he could just sa- sail across the ocean and arrive in uh, Asia. And they were, of course, right about that, and he just happened to luck out, and he was a lunatic. He wasn't a great visionary who believed <laughs> something that... Uh, the, <laughs> he wasn't a great visionary who proved them all wrong he was a guy who just happened to who was who was indeed a lunatic and stumbled across on something else and happened to luck into success yeah and he <laughs> certainly wasn't a science a, a scientist and you know proving a scientific principle um yeah 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 laura go ahead so why do you think tolkien made his world flat then i don't know i don't know i mean i think well okay to answer that, that would be to get into talking about Numenor more than we should probably talk about Numenor at this point. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get there. Um, but so as not to like dodge that and leave it in case I forget to say this later on, I'll just say very briefly, I think the most important element in that story is the removal of Valinor. Um, and the, the making of the mortal world into a separate and closed circuit. Um, that seems to me to be the primary um, sort of thematic significance of the spherification of the world. Um, but but anyway, we'll get back to that, you know, in like three months or something. And doesn't, uh, doesn't making the world round sort of get rid of that sun and moon myth anyway? Because the sun obviously can't rest in in uh, Amman anymore. Yeah, well, it just makes it doesn't work anymore. 
well, it just makes the sun's job easier. Now, instead of going all the way down underneath the earth, it just has to go around the round world. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's now a comparatively easy life. Uh, no, I mean, again, but this is, I think it's exactly why Tolkien became increasingly uncomfortable with this. You know, he's, you know, it's, he felt that it was a thing that just didn't work, um, in his, in his mythology. And I, I, you know, I think there are definitely ways in which that's right. I mean, like I said, I'm not going to say, I don't think like, I, I don't think that, Revision might not have like been a fine thing, but I, but I just you know don't think he would have had on principle uh, to totally reject the idea. Um, but uh, but anyway, more more on the round world later on. Um, let's see, um, Elizabeth, you had you had a question about the end. Yeah, this is actually from way back in the beginning of the chapter. Um, I think it's the third sentence in the chapter. It says. Um, Thus they held vigil in the night of Valinor, and their thought passed back beyond Ea and forth to the end. And I thought that was really curious, and I just wondered, beyond Ea and forth to the end, capital E, what exactly is he talking about there? I would, I would think that that would be the end of time, essentially. Um, that he would be thinking about... Um, before Aya, so back to the music and 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 all of that, and then forward to um the back to the music, forward to the end of time. Um, so we have them not only kind of searching. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think both of them are chronologically sort of cued. Um, but beyond Aya. If it just said their thoughts went beyond Ea, it would sound like a spatial thing, like, you know, beyond the universe to, like, that which is without or whatever, uh, beyond the circles of the world or, or, or whatever. But I think that by saying it passed back beyond Ea and forth to the end, um, that I think in- indicates that we're thinking about time. Um, so this is, I think, one of those moments where we see, um, we see people, uh, there are several moments, a couple that we've already seen, um, where the Valar are basically like, let, let us go back and like go over the music, uh, in our heads again and see if we can see what we're supposed to be doing here and, uh, you know, see how, what was in the music that reflects on this. Remember the, the, you know, the little, uh, 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 you know, conversation that Yavanna and Manwe have, um, you know, in their little discussion about ints, um, and eagles, uh, you know, again, we see Manway doing that, you know, he sort of like suddenly goes in and he sees new parts of this or hears new parts of the song and sees new parts of the vision that he didn't, that he didn't perceive before. Um, so here we have the Valar together collectively contemplating the entire scope of the music, uh, and thinking, you know, it's pooling everything that they know and everything that they can see and everything that they remember about how this is supposed to go. And this is how they make the decision to do this. Um, so I think therefore the, um, I think therefore the, 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 the end there refers to the end of times. You know, the, we've had a couple references to, uh, the, the, the new music that's going to be sung to the, uh, to the, you know, the last battle and all of those things. And I think that, uh, I, I think that that's what we're talking about here. Um, Let's see, I think, let's see, it's been some time already, and we have not had style time yet. So I think it's, I think it's time for style time. Uh, Mike, you had several style time suggestions for us today. Hi, I may have gone completely off the rails with this one. <laughs> but I'll just throw it out there. Why not? So Tolkien treats flowers and trees slightly differently, like in, in these 
in this story and in other uh, works. And I'm just, I was reading how he describes the trees at the very end of their life, and they're described as stems. And then I flipped back to when the trees are born on my little paperback, which is like page 31. Uh, and they're first described as slender shoots, and then only later they're described as saplings. So they're first described as shoots, and then they're finally described as stems and not trunks. And so to me, that it seems like he's ultimately putting the two trees in the same camp as flowers. But I don't really know what that means, because I haven't really... I need to look back and try to figure out what do trees mean to Tolkien versus what do uh, flowers mean to Tolkien. So, you know, I that's something that I flagged. I, I just thought that the use of that word stems at the, at the end and shoots at the beginning uh, was curious. And then the other thing that I... I had trouble with and just didn't understand was when the sun rises and the first sound that we hear is the sound of many waterfalls and I couldn't really make sense of that the best I could come up with was I guess in a lot of Tolkien's writing still water frozen water stagnant water is usually associated with with evil or with life force being kind of stopped up and when the sun finally comes up we we hear the sound of waterfalls so you know, any thoughts on the two trees and the flower imagery, and also uh, the sound of waterfalls when the first the first time the sun rises? Well, let's see. The um, your broader point about trees and flowers is a really interesting one, and I don't have an answer off the top of my head. Um, it's sound. It, I I think though I do have the sort of sense that I think there's definitely something there. I think if you were to do a kind of a broader study throughout Tolkien and look at not only how trees and flowers are described, but the way in which those two things are used metaphorically by Tolkien, I do suspect that you could find um, an interesting pattern there. Um, but I'm not sure what to say about it off the top of my head. Um, the His use of stem to refer to the trunks of the trees, that is something that he does that in, in other places as well. Um, he definitely refers to the stems of trees. I think he does this uh, in Lothlorien in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so I think that, that that's a thing that he does on more than one occasion. And I'm not sure that that necessarily means that he's thinking in flower terms, that that, that makes it metaphorical. Certainly, in one sense, I think we can see it at the very least as a, as a way in which Tolkien is... Um, kind of connecting plants in general. Um, it, it, it seems to me in some ways sort of a very Tolkien kind of insight to to want to emphasize the similarity between the different kinds of plants. You know, that, that trees, like trees and tulips are not really, like, are not totally different. You know, one is similar to the other. Again, you think of the, the sort of, like, community spirit among the... Um, among the plants, among the Kelvar that Yavanna is talking about, you know, that the, this is why the ants are going to be looking out not only for trees, um, but for all things that grow. So this kind of intrinsic connection, this sort of, you know, brotherhood among, uh, all of the plants and all of the things that grow. I mean, that, that seems to me like a, like a, like a perfectly satisfactory sort of Tolkien idea, but I don't, but I, but I wouldn't necessarily do much with it because it seems to be kind of a sort of a word choice thing. Um, that he just kind of liked that word. Um, and actually, uh, I'm looking at the waterfalls quote now, and I think I just answered my own question. All right, here, let's hear it. Is it meteorological? Is it that the sun comes up 
the clouds were kindled, that creates rain, and that creates waterfalls? Is that what's going on there? That is possible. See, tell me, which paragraph are we in with the waterfalls? I want to make sure I get the passage right. It starts with, Tilion had traversed the heaven seven times, and thus was in the fullest east. And then, a couple sentences later, the sun comes up for the first time, the clouds of Middle-earth were kindled, and there was heard the sound of many waterfalls. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that does seem to follow from the clouds being kindled. But I, but I agree the other... Uh, I, I, I was also going to agree, though, with what you were saying before about this. what this seems to be the connection with life. Remember... Middle-earth, much of Middle-earth has been bound in a sleep. That is, the growing things in Middle-earth has been, have been put in this sleep by Yavanna. And what we see, when the sun hits the earth, hits Middle-earth, which has been dark for, you know, has had nothing but starlight, you know, ever since, what, the lamps, right? So, I mean, it's been a heck of a long time. Um, and Yavanna made all of these things dormant, and they all spring to life, Um when uh when the sun comes out so i think that one of the things that we can see there is sort of the 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 returning of life um you know the the voice of many waterfalls there also kind of makes me think even of things like you know blood circulating and um you know spring thaws and new life rising and i think that that because this is this is what's happening in middle earth um so that's basically sort of the association that i have with it um but uh but i don't know one certainly miss, and i agree with you there does seem to be a literal connection there between uh the clouds being the clouds being kindled though i think the kindling there is also a visual metaphor that is that they're glowing with light as well so um i don't think that we're just talking about rain but um but anyway yeah there's um that's what that's what i would do with it let's see uh joe you wanted to talk about Nienna's tears yeah um i was just wondering that I kind of went back and looked uh, looked previously and how it kind of blessed and kind of seemed to help along the trees or was a part of them coming up. Um, and then, you know, Manway asks uh, Yvonne and Nienna to put forth all their powers of growth and healing, and they put forth all their powers upon the trees, but the tears of Nienna availed not to heal their mortal, mortal wounds. And I was wondering if that could be connected with um, sort of what you guys mentioned earlier with the Marian of Feanor and it's just this moment in itself being so evil. I mean, it says uh, evil may have been good to have been and yet remain evil. It's just, it's still such a bad thing that it just, well, some of these things just can't be turned around, but it, it can still be made good, kind of. I just I just wanted to see how her tears kind of connect with things done before. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the image of Nienna weeping over the trees um, is... I think a you know a really powerful image in this chapter, and this is the moment that I was thinking of a couple of weeks ago when we had the birth of the trees. And you'll remember that Nienna waters the mound with her tears before the trees spring up. Like the, it's one of the things that brings them to life in the first place. She's there to assist there, and now she assists again at the end. Um, and one of the things that I suggested then, though again I kind of re- refrained from talking about it too much because we hadn't gotten here yet, but you know I wonder how much is she thinking about th- how much is she anticipating this when she's weeping over the mound before the trees have even sprung up? Is she thinking about and anticipating um, their inevitable destruction um, and the fact that they're going to pass uh, and they're going to fall, um, and you know, and that these two things that the, the the, not the, not the parallelism, but the sort of the mirror image, or like the bookends that we get on the life of the trees are Nienna weeping at the beginning and Nienna weeping at the end. Um, and there seems to be a kind of unity 
in those two actions, um, which I think is really powerful and very, very Tolkien-esque. I mean, that is like, uh, I think a really, uh, points in a really deep way uh, to uh, sort of the worldview of Tolkien's books. But, um, Joe, go ahead. I was going to say, um, isn't Nana kind of connected with uh, taking these sad things but moving on and um, kind of... Uh doing new things. Well, yeah, she, she is involved in, um, you know, like taking sorrow and turning it into wisdom. Right. Um, and so we can see her being connected in a broad sense with the trend that Iluvatar pointed to way back at the beginning. That is, you know, the, uh, in the passage that you quoted earlier about evil being good to have been, um, yes, yes, that, that, that is what happens. And as you said, you can't just reverse it. Nienna, one of the things that Nienna is about as the Valar of Lamentation, what she, like, what her job is, what her, what her area is, what she points to is, you know, okay, evil can't just be corrected. It can't just be reversed. It can't just be undone. Um, that's not how Iluvatar works. That's not how this whole world works. That's not how this creation works. Um, you don't just wipe out Melkor and, like, you know, kick him off the stage and do the music again. Instead, his um instead his music is incorporated into the whole and gives it a new beauty and a new glory um and that's like that's what Iluvatar says like that's what he's in the business of is taking taking something that is meant for evil and transforming it into good and showing Melkor and anybody else who wants to follow in his footsteps that it is not possible for them actually to subvert the his his good plan and his intention to bring about good for the world and for the people of the world. And so, I mean, Yavana, or not Yavana, Nienna, she is the instrument of that um, and sort of the expression of that, I think. Um, so no, she doesn't, she doesn't reverse it. She can't with her tears bring about the healing of the trees. She can't just renew them and make it as if the evil thing had never happened, but she can bring hope in despair, and she can bring the sun and the moon, you know, she can bring the fruit and the flower out of the destruction, you know, sort of assist in this, not that she does it herself, but she can assist in the bringing of that out, and the and the, the emergence of hope, and again, the, the, the transition from the trees to the sun and the moon, this is a tragedy, it's one of the, one of the sort of the core central, most iconic tragedies of the first age, the destruction of the trees, but it also is easy to see how, in a sense, evil shall be good to have been. Ask the creatures in Middle-earth who are just now finally waking up. Ask the people who, you know, the, the Avari who have been oppressed by these by these evil shadows and have been living in fear. You know, ask the people of Middle-earth who have been neglected by the Valar who are over there with their trees and their little patch of ground um, whether or not the destruction of the trees is good to have been. Yeah, because look what comes of it. We have we have now the light is shared with everybody, and now that light it's not the same light, and it doesn't mean that destroying the trees was a great move and 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 you know uh, an an excellent thing, but um but in the end evil shall be good to have been. Elizabeth, what did you want to add? I just wanted to comment that not only did uh, Nienna's tears bookend the the birth and the death of the trees, but also through her advocacy of Melkor's release, she also, in a way, played a part in their destruction. 
Oh yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And I think that we, we, we do, we should really look at this moment and this, you know, sort of the, the role of Deanna as we see it here in the context of that. Um, thinking back to the discussion we had of that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, let's see. Um, one thing I, uh, coming back and I think, I can't remember if it was, John, I think it was, I think it was you, John. Um, one of the things that I had wanted to say in connection with some of your observations about Melkor, which, uh, I lost my train of thought and never got back to. The question of why it is that the sun affects him in the way that it does. Um, why is he so afraid of light? I mean, we're talking about the guy, he just, like, just, he just destroyed the trees. You know, he just took his spear, um, and hacked the trees open so that Ungoliant could, could suck the, the, you know, their, their sap and their light out of them. Um, why is he now cowering in fear? I mean, sure, Aryan freaks him out or whatever. Tillian doesn't. But anyway, whatever. Why, why is it that it affects him this much? Um, what do you guys think? Any, any, any thoughts about, cause in some ways, right, it seems a little bit counterintuitive that Morgoth should be, that Morgoth and his creatures should be affected quite so strongly as this. Anybody have any thoughts about that? I, I wonder if it's, uh, if he's afraid now because he's lost so much of his strength, whereas before he was much stronger. Maybe that's why he. It is, yeah. Stay away from the light. Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly at the very least, uh, sort of a, a kind of a symptom, right? That is, uh, his fear is a consequence of his decrease in power. Um, the old Melkor, you know, like, you think of the, the, if we remember the imagery and, you know, the words that are used to describe his arrival in Arda when he first comes in, um, you know, and he is, he is very powerful and he is very lordly. We think of his overturning of the, you know, his, his destruction of the lamps, uh, way back at the beginning. This is not that Melkor. You know, that Melkor, it seems, could have taken out Aryan. Um, but, uh, now he can't. So yeah, that does seem to be a factor. But the interesting thing to me is the light thing, right? Why should, why should Melkor, Mr. Like, I love light and want light all for myself, um, why should he, um, why should he be so afraid of the light? And this, like, I guess I also just come back to, uh, one of the things that I was saying before, it's just one of the things that I think makes this image so powerful. The brilliant sunlight shining down outside and Morgoth clouding him, you know, covering his domain in a cloud, hiding under the ground in the shadows, away from the sun, and yet down there in the deep, deep darkness, protected from the blazing sunlight shining outside, there he is with his Silmarils saying, I am the master of the light, right? Um, and there is a kind of delicious picture of the nature of evil there, I think, um, which I, which I find which I find really appealing. But all of the creatures of the dark, they can't take it. And John, uh, you were also right before in talking about that is for uh, talking about Sauron's rationale for his shadow, which he extends out. They follow his armies because he wants his orcs to be able to march during the day. Um, so. So yeah, I think that that you know we, we can see you know we're told Treebeard says um, you can always tell you know or orcs you know, always tell the you know the creatures that came in the great darkness because they can't endure the light. It, it is a mark of the creatures uh, that came in the great darkness that is before the sun, um, because orcs were made in the darkness. Um, they just they that you know the sun they can't handle the sun. Um, 
So yeah, it's not just Morgoth himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Jordan? Uh, yeah, um, bringing up something that Brandon was bringing up in the text, uh, it seems to be very much like Gollum, um, as well as, uh, as he says, consistent with Milton Satan, is that you hate most which you love most. And uh, Brandon's headset's sketchy, so I wanted to get that point out there uh, because I think it is actually a really good point. No, I totally agree. Um, you think of uh, that um, that line from Gandalf about Gollum, right? He hated and loved the ring as he hated and loved himself. Um, well, the light is like that for Melkor, right? I mean, he hates and loves the light as he hates and loves himself. Um, and uh, and I, again, I think that this really illustrates that clearly. I think it's fair. I mean, of course, we remember Gollum has this same relationship with the, the yellow face and the white face, right? He is not happy about the sun and the moon. Um, and remember how he talks about them. They're always like, you know him thinking of them as faces. They're always watching you, right? He wants to hide from them. Um, and there is a sense in which uh, Melkor is doing the same thing too. Um, and, uh, you know, that, you know, he wants to, he wants to hide. He wants to hide from the light. Um, Joe, go ahead. I think what I'm going to say kind of connects with what was said earlier of him uh, not being as powerful. Maybe uh, it's maybe a lack of control. You know, he can hold the Silmarils in his hand. It hurts, but he can do it. He, he has them right there. And um, but having the big light out there, he can't control it. Almost undermines his authority, as it would to everyone that he said, "Oh yeah, I'm the master. Come follow me." Um, like it kind of undermines him in a way. Like this is something that you have no power of whatsoever. So he has to cloud that and say, "No, don't think about that. Think about me having the Silmarils and how everyone wants these, but I have them." So mm-hmm. I just I didn't know if there might have been a connection there. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of funny, right? That on the one hand, um, you think of Feanor's words. Um, you know, we alone shall be masters, uh, 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 of the light, right? You know, that w- when he's sort of fantasizing about how he's going to reclaim the Silmarils. Um, what's the word? He uses an adjective. Unsullied, is that it? I'm forgetting what it is exactly. Uh, it's right after the oath. Yeah, well, I'll find it later on. Um, but anyway, uh, so here's, here's Fanor saying, we alone shall be masters of the light, and there's Melkor, um, it is this sort of wonderful irony again, right? You know, where he's like, I have the light. I am the only one who has the light. Now the light of the trees is dead and it only lives here in my hand and I possess it alone. And then the sun comes up. It's like, well, crap. Now everybody has the light, <laughs> right? Um, and I, this, it, it, again, it's just, it's sort of delightful. I love that. Um, yeah, good. Mike? Maybe another way to look at it is that Melkor is now an example of a dispersed uh, spirit of fire or mire of fire. I don't know. He's dispersed, and and uh, Arian is described as he. You know, Tolkien doesn't use the word concentrated, but she is clearly the opposite of dispersed. So maybe that's another part of the the hatred is Melkor seeing the the concentrated and pure version of what he was, and now recognizing that he's a really watered down version of them. Yeah, well, of course, you know, another thing, another thing that makes Aryan greater, and I think that we can see some ways in which she has, um, 
she has been promoted while he has been kind of demoting or rather degrading himself. Um, she is serving and he's seeking to dominate. When you seek to dominate, again, this is, this is quite, uh, stable that we can see throughout Tolkien's works. When you seek to dominate other people, you end up corrupting yourself. You end up lowering yourself. You end up dispersing yourself. That's, that's, that's not like the punishment that is meted out to evil people. That's what it means to be evil. That's, you know, the, uh, just as, you know, in the image with Ungoliant eating herself, like, you know, uh, or, you know, in her utmost famine at last consuming herself. That's, that's what happens. Now, on the other hand, if you don't seek to dominate and you don't seek to promote yourself and instead you serve other people and instead you serve selflessly, that makes you greater. Um, remember even the comment about Sauron that he was he was only less evil than Melkor in that for long he served another and not himself. The greatest thing about Sauron is that he is for a long time faithful to Morgoth. Um, so ev- even in Sauron, we can see it kind of operating that way. And Aryan, she is sacrificing herself. She is devoting herself entirely uh, to the preservation of the fruit of Laurelin. Um so what what she does is an act of self-sacrifice. I'm going to restrict myself. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to spend the rest of my time for like the rest of the time, but all the way until the end, capital E, I'm just going to be sitting up here with this fruit and I'm going to be um, helping to provide light to everybody else. Um, that's that's a big deal. Um, and and I think that you know, this is this is one of the things that makes her stronger. You can't you can't take her out. Morgoth certainly can't take her out. This is, of course, also why Sam is the greatest hero of the Lord of the Rings, because he is the best servant of everybody. Um, sorry, little side note, can't help but mention that. But, um, but anyway, yeah, no, so I, so I do think that we do have, for that reason, reason to see, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of overall good versus evil paradigms, there are definite ways in which, you know, Aryan, um, you can see these patterns of why of why Aryan is now greater uh, than Morgoth, and why that sort of works, and why that's why that makes sense. Um, let's see. We should wrap up pretty soon. I'm just kind of looking through for uh, for odds and ends that we should touch on at least briefly before we go. Uh, Jason, you you wanted to uh, mention something about the elves in the outer air? Yes, there's a passage near the end of the chapter where it's talking about the Valar creating a mountain range to uh, guard Valinor, but that they didn't seal it off completely. And one of the reasons for that, it says, all those of elven race, even the Vanyar and Ingwe their lord, must breathe at times the outer air and the wind that comes over the sea from the lands of their birth. And I know that we uh, talk about later how you know, men cannot come to Valinor because it kills them and uh, I'm just wondering if there's some sort of um, connection here, too, with the elves, whether Valinor is too much for them, or if, if it's something a more fundamental connection to uh, to Middle-earth, that they have to maintain some kind of connection there, and it's not so much being in Valinor that is the problem for them. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that's... I, I think that, that that passage is the one that we can see most clearly. I mean, if there's one place in the whole Silmarillion that I had to point to to say, you know, this is why I think... Take, you know, bringing the elves permanently to Valinor clearly was is not the right thing. We can see by their nature they are tied to Middle Earth. Um, even Ingwe has to go out and you know get at least a little whiff of the air coming over the sea from Middle Earth. Um, it, it's not it's not right for them to have been, to be totally separated from 
from Middle Earth. So yeah, I mean, I think that I think that 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 passage is relatively clear about that. They are connected to Middle Earth. Um, now, I mean, you know, we'll see. We'll come back to this later on. Um, you know, Laura, thinking about what you were talking about before with the making of the Earth round and everything, and that that whole separation. Um, you know, this this will this will come up again then. Um, when the elves go back into the West later on, I'm not sure that things sort of work the same way there, that we can see the same thing happening there as we did back at the beginning when the, when the Valar invited them to come over and join them. But, but yeah, certainly that breathing the air of the outer world is definitely something that I think that we can see, um, where we can see evidence of the fact that this, this really is, it really is Middle Earth. Uh, that the elves sort of fundamentally belong. And it's why I think Elvenholm is Tal Arisea, you know, is that island off the coast of Valinor, really close to Valinor, almost there, um, you know, in, in, within reach of the Valar and, and, you know, a suburb of Valinor, but not Valinor itself. Um, and that I think is, uh, that, that I think is, is, is pretty important. Um, let's see. Brandon, you were uh, wanting to ask about the very last, or sort of to talk briefly, and this seems a fitting place to end, about the very last line in the chapter, the reference to the mightiest mariner in song. Um, do you have audio? Are you able to, 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 to ask or talk about that? Let's see, I see uh, Brandon is typing. Let's see. Hmm. I saw Brandon was typing, and now I don't see, I don't see the actual thing that Brandon typed. Hmm. <laughs> Jack is expecting that Brandon is just typing a lot, which is, which is I suppose possible. I see. Oh, Dusty, you're asking about the rainbow bridges. The the rainbow bridges in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, it's not. I'm pretty sure it's not in the summer. It's just in the Book of Lost Tales. One of the problems, of course, if you if you read the Book of Lost Tales and you read, you know, basically if you get into the History of Middle-Earth series, um, you'll read so many versions of these stories as they evolve over time that one of the inevitable consequences is you start getting really confused and forgetting which bits are in which stories. Um, so I might be messing this up, but I think, I think, um, uh, I think that the, the, the reference to the Rainbow Bridges, Dusty, um, is definitely in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, Anyway, yeah. Um, let's see, Mike. Did you want to? Did you want to add something on this topic that is on the topic of the the mightiest mariner of song? I just wanted to add that th- this is a a great moment of Tolkien the storyteller. The two long paragraphs about how impossible it is for anyone to get through this area with the mountains and the shadowy seas, and then this teaser of a sentence at the end is just terrific. And you know, even if you are a really young reader, and we're having a hard time with other parts of this book. That that long paragraph and that and that uh, final sentence are just just great storytelling. I I totally I'd agree. Like to chime in. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I as much as I dislike this chapter, I <laughs> loved that final sentence more than yeah. anything else in the chapter. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I totally agree. Um, one of the things that he that he manages to do, and this is clearly a really important thing, the position of Arendel in this mythology as a whole um, is just, is, is huge, is hugely important. Now, if we're coming to the Silmarillion from the Lord of the Rings, which, of course, almost every human being on Earth 
always has, not only because the Lord of the Rings were published sooner, but because of uh, the fact that so many more people read it. But anyway, if you're coming, you know, when coming to the Silmarillion from the Lord of the Rings, you can, um, you're sort of set up for Arendel, and you already know that Arendel was a big deal. And when you get to the story of Arendel, you're you're kind of all over it because we have Bilbo's song in Rivendell, right? And we've already heard about Arendel, and we know about you know his star and you know the 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 file of Galadriel and all this other stuff. So the name already resonates, and we're ready for it. But um, but within the story, within the Silmarillion itself, he's setting this up here. This this forward. This, you know, sort of foreshadowing reference. Not exactly foreshadowing, that's not quite right. Um, but anyway, this, 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 this glance forward, save one only, the mightiest mariner of song, um, prepares us so that when we get to Arendelle, we are ready to see, like, this, this is the fulfillment of that sort of semi-prophecy from before. This is, um, this is, the legendary figure, the great story that we have been anticipating and looking forward to, because in a in a in a story which is full of great uh, of great characters and and huge characters and um uh and you know I mean all of these people are like earth shaking beneath my feet, powerful and and huge and everything. I mean most of them are yet uh, among all of those, A. Arundel needs to stand out. You know he needs to be. Uh, you know, this, he needs to be a legendary figure to the other legendary figures. And, uh, and I think this is one way that we can see this beginning to, uh, beginning to be, to be set up. Okay. I'm wanting to, uh, I see evidence of Brandon still typing. Go ahead, Jordan. Although Arendel is, you know, one of the greatest characters, I think we can all agree that Fingolfin is truly the greatest character in the story. <laughs> I was I was rather suspecting that uh uh that I would stir up that response from you Jordan. Um uh uh yeah, I don't want to start the start a fight. I know Chris uh has been having problems with his audio tonight, so uh <laughs> you know, I don't want to I don't want to start anything here. Um <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um we will get our we will get our big Fingolfin day uh pretty soon. I'll get to come back to him. Um and on a side note, if anyone else tries to read the section where he challenges Morgoth to single combat, I will fly to wherever you are and fight you. <laughs> Fairly warned. Fairly warned. Um yeah, well I have to say that that that's my other favorite moment in this passage is the horns of Fingolfin ringing out as the moon rises. Um yeah, yeah. Uh that's a that is also a wonderful moment and I know uh I haven't been able to read all of the text chat that's uh that's been going on over here on the right-hand side, but uh but I have seen a few references to that. Um so I know I know that's come up. Uh-oh. Chris wants to chip in here. Go ahead. I lost connection there for a minute, but when I came back on, I heard my name. What did I miss? Oh, uh, 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 Jordan was uh, uh, just making his statements about how Fingolfin is without question the greatest hero in the whole book. So, um... Okay, that's that's kind of what I thought. Oh, well. Let him <laughs> <see that. That's funny. laughs> okay, okay. Well, I, 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 Chris, as I understand, you are a... You are, you are a Finrod proponent. Is that is that uh, the way this this duel is going down? 
I uh, yeah, I think so. He's always been my favorite character. So I mean, I, that's not to say anything negative about Finn Gulfin. I mean, he's he's great, but I my Finn or I mean uh, Finn Rod's always been my favorite. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, a case can be I don't made. Don't want to fight about it. I don't want to fight about it. <laughs> unless he wants. Unless Jordan wants to. He was getting kind of provocative earlier in the evening. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have no problem stooping to the, taking the lower road and saying bad things about uh, Finrod. So once okay, we get well. to those chapters, it's on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. I, we all look forward to that. And I think, uh, with that piece of foreshadowing, we should, we should probably close tonight. Okay. Well, good night, everybody. Thus concludes Of the Sun and Moon. Join us again next time when we spend two and a half hours discussing two and a half pages of men. This is Jordan Brown. And for myself and the rest of the Silmarillionaires, thanks for listening and Godspeed.